Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Okay, let's do the intro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, value nerds. This is Value After Hours. I'm your co-host, Jake Taylor. And today with me, I've got our usuals, Toby Carlisle and Bill Brewster. Hey, uh, Bill, what are we going to be talking about for your segment? We're going to talk about um, Cleveland Cliffs using undervalued currency to complete a transaction. Toby? Morgan Hassel's tweet about Buffett buying Bloomberg. And Jake, what's yours? I'm going to be the party pooper and uh, talk about $10 trillion worth of U.S. corporate debt. Ooh. That sounds good. Right after the break. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. So I've just I've been reading um, the the book about Simons. Yeah, is yeah. that any good? I it's it's very well written. Um, and I've, the reason I'm reading is because uh, Gregory Zuckerman reached out to to talk about coming on. He's I mean he's going to be on my podcast. Oh nice! And so I'm reading it to. But I haven't discovered anything in there that I didn't already know. Yeah. Basically, so there's no there's no secret you know to what they do. Nobody but no Greg doesn't know if there is. Greg hasn't shared it. Did you tell him that? Were you like, uh, your your book's not very good. There's nothing I <laughs> well, the don't book is know. good. Like if you if you if you hadn't tried to find like I've tried to figure out what they're doing for years. Yeah, and I've come to the conclusion that nobody really knows. And I think what they what he says in the book is nobody really knows, and possibly they that. don't even know. It yet. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think what they're doing is kind of smart. So what they do is they've just got countless what i think what they're doing is they've just got countless of these little strategies where they've found little anomalies in the market and they trade them and they trade them to the point out of them yeah they just trade them to the point that they you know they arbitrage it away themselves and then continue doing it so nobody else can even pick it up that it's there that is some gangster shit it's smart like it like I, i get the i i think i don't think they'll blow up the way I don't think they can blow up the way long-term capital management did. I don't think they can blow up the way any of the other quants do because I think they've got, and I do think it's smart, you just build out you know, as many different strategies as you possibly can. They all get a little bit of the portfolio. Do, they, the, do they use leverage though? I think they do. Because you can't tell me at some point those don't things don't correlate together, like auto-correlate. Well, they, do, they then, definitely did, right? You've read the book, yeah. haven't you, Jake? I haven't read that one yet, oh. no. That, that, like there were definitely times when they've overridden the models. Like there was the quant quake in 2007 and there was another one where they overrode the models and uh, Simon's just stepped in and said, we're, you know, we're not going to do that because, you know, so everybody knows momentum, when momentum breaks down. Um, it, it breaks hard. Yeah. So momentum goes down really hard. And then Imagine it that. doesn't work Just for a bunch it. of people buying because they're buying because it's higher, selling because things are going lower. That's amazing. Who would have thought? Dude, it's the most annoying thing when people say to me, like, how do you know that like deep value is going to come back? Because it's so easy to implement. It's so over arbitrage. I'm like, 
you're right. It is not really hard to implement, but it's it, it's harder to implement than momentum is. And momentum's been working really well. So yeah. explain that. No one one's to me. asking those questions. But the the interesting thing about momentum is when it does break down, it it uh you know so it has the big drop. The drawdowns are sickening, and then it doesn't work for a year after the big drawdown because oh. the signal's broken. And so I think Simon's understood that. And he said, we're just going to not trade this momentum strategy for. It's on a timeout. Yeah, we're going to turn it off for a moment. And we're going to just make sure we survive because we want to keep this as a good business. And then they turn it on a few days later because they're not using you know one-year momentum. They're using all these different little short-term trends. And it seemed to work and they survived. Well, that's what Greenblatt said too, right? Where he was uh, not – that isn't what – I need to work on my phrasing things in a podcast. But – what you are saying about momentum is what Greenblatt said in that if momentum ever breaks down, he's not going to be able to stick with it. But buying stuff cheap right. is just something that he's like, no, fundamentally, this must work. So this is what I do. Right. Because yeah. it, it makes logical sense. That's but right. That's one of the interesting things about what uh, Renaissance do is that they don't look for things that make logical sense. They just find the huh. anomaly. Hmm. And if the anomaly is robust according to their sampling statistical methods, yeah, then they implement it, which I think is kind of interesting because I, that's one of the you know they always the the argument for back for why backtesting doesn't work is that you find these things that aren't real, right? You just find these flukes in the data, and then you, you implement that. So they're like they're literally going out there and trying to find these things and they're not worrying about the explanation. But, you know, Taleb says you need to be careful of those sort of things. But then you can, you, I can fit an explanation. I'll go and work at Renaissance and I'll come up with the reasons for why the, the anomaly exists. Like, I'll, I'll come up with a good story for it. Of course, yeah. I think that's the easiest thing to do, right? You fit the story to the, to the data. Aren't they, they're like the ultimate uh, argument for just random ass data mining. Right, and not that it works. everyone's yeah. always like bashing it, but these guys have done pretty well. It's kind of an interesting approach, though, right? You say, so uh, we're going to go out and look for these things and not try and fit a story to them. Then, how do we assure that they are real? Like, and then you, you, that's a data science question that it's kind of beyond my abilities, but that's the I don't know how they do that, but they must have some sort of you know, they take voice recognition type work and they do code breaking and other things like that and take those skills and apply them to anomalies that they find in the market. I find it interesting. Anyone that can do what they did is insanely interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. And still going. Yeah. So I saw somebody the other day said it's like entering a, a Mack truck in a Formula One race and consistently winning. Huh. <laughs> so... Bill, do you want to kick it off with uh, your topic? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, something that came into the news recently was uh, Lorenco Goncalves Gon uh, at Cliffs Natural Resources, or Cleveland Cliffs, used to be Cliffs Natural Resources. And he is using stock to purchase um, U.S. steel, I believe. And I find the transaction pretty interesting I'm going to read an excerpt from uh, his two conference calls ago. He says, we increased the size of the share repurchase program and bought back another $130 million worth of Cliff shares in the second quarter, bringing the total amount of the buyback to $300 million since inception. 
other than this expansion problem uh, project that they're undertaking. Um, yada yada yada. Anyway, he says to the short sellers, uh, I want to thank you very much for the shares that we bought back. You sold your shares very cheap. Again, thanks for your gift to Cliff shareholders. Besides the new normal for iron ore prices, the other view that drives our moves going forward is that the current weakness in the domestic steel market is temporary. So I guess that's consistent with purchasing U.S. steel. The thing that's really tough for me to wrap my head around is here he is saying thank you for selling your shares very cheap. And then he's issuing shares that are now 30 percent, 40 percent lower than when he had this conference call. And it, it complicates the story. The, the story used to be they had these pellets that were premium and they had a distribution advantage that they could send the pellets on rail down to these HBI plants, hot brick at iron. It's a better way to manufacture. And now he's turning this, uh, what I think is a fairly clean story, into an integrated steel manufacturer in the U.S. that appears at least to me to be somewhat dependent on tariffs and using cheap currency. And and I just think it's one of those interesting examples of somebody being in a less quality business and having to take actions to try to either grow the business or justify its existence. And it's just so the opposite of something like Starbucks where the decision is just build more stores. Um, and I just think it's a, it's in, a interesting and b a, a pretty good example of Buffett saying bad businesses throw up bad decisions, difficult decisions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I would say that maybe we all need to add to our investment checklist. Taunting share, short sellers is a uh, is probably a good good sell signal for you. You just never want to be. You don't want to tempt the gods like that, right? I, I literally just wrote that down as the as one of the points that I wanted to make. That's it's just. Not a good sign when somebody's out there bombing on the shorts. No good CEO even cares what the shorts are doing because they just know they're going to get beaten up in run, the next. Run little... your business. Don't taunt short sellers. Who cares what the shorts do? It's it's bizarre because shorts are doing lots. Like I short, I short over a short time frame. Uh, it could be nothing. Doesn't necessarily. It's not a comment on the everlasting business. It's a comment on the business where it is at the time, or the stock price where it is relative to the business. It's a silly. It's a silly thing to say. Well, I I think it's super interesting. I have a part of me that really likes that. You know, I I there's a part of me that likes the hubris of it and and I don't mind Money Mayweather is a guy that I used to root for. I mean, I sort of like the villain coming out and winning. Um and the hubris of it, but I I do contrast that with Robert Para from Ubiquity when the shorts attacked him. He did go to Twitter and he said something about short sellers, but a lot of what he wrote, uh, they invited him on CNBC and his response was, I'm not going on CNBC. I have a business to run. And Good line. That's you know, correct. I mean, it really is. And I think shorts got on him for that response because he did take a quick shot at short sellers, but he wasn't on conference calls going at them and I... I I should have not listened to the part of me that roots for entertainment, and I should have listened to the investing <laughs> part of me. I mean, thankfully, I'm out of the shares already. But um, some CEOs are just great 
sport. Like Musk is great sport. Like I, I, I like Musk uh, personally. Like I think he's a, and I, I love watching his Twitter feed and I love watching him go back and forth. I'm not a huge fan of Tesla, but I, I, I kind of like, like I do like the shenanigans. It's entertaining. And for a while with uh, Goncalves or Clavis, I'm sorry if I keep pronouncing it incorrectly, but he was, his, he was backing up the talk. And I, I like that a lot, but I don't know. The more that I but how about the thing where he's so he's he's on one hand he's he's using shares to buy he's issuing shares to buy U.S. steel, right? I'm pretty sure it's U.S. steel, yes. And he's saying on the other hand they're too cheap. Someone needs to send him that book on capital allocation by Jake Taylor. That's exactly <laughs> my point, right? I mean, Jake, you need to call this guy. I think that was the Outsiders. That was the one that you were thinking of. <laughs> No, no, it was it was clearly yours. Some people need that narrative voice. Uh, that's true. Well, I do. I, I do right. wonder what the what did what I don't know. I haven't looked at the specific financials of either of the companies in quite a while. But like, what did he get for his giving away part of the company? Yeah. So I think that what oh, it looks like it's AK Steel. Okay. So sorry, but regardless. If you pull up the stock price of AK Steel, it is apparently, you know, going to be a decent deal for Cliff. So he would argue I'm buying a more undervalued asset than I'm giving up. But if you pull up a long-term chart of any of the U.S. steel makers, which, you know, I mean, a chart can only tell you so much. But over a long duration, I do think it tells you something. They're not good businesses. Well, they're pretty beaten up at the moment. I think they're yeah, cheap. Over, well, if you look over a long, long time, they never really get expensive. I mean, it's a commodity. It's a commodity product is the problem. That's right. You're Cyclical dealing with commodity. all types of stuff. You know, you got China. You've got a lot of dumping. I just, I don't know. It seems to me that he's he's muddying the water, and it's a it's a more complicated story. And he's issuing what he deems cheap currency. It doesn't make a lot of sense to C- me. Could you could you do it with debt? Well, so the problem, and this goes back to the the bad business giving difficult decisions, he is building out a huge facility. Uh, it's an HBI facility, and I think that's going to be roughly a billion dollars, and that's where a lot of the debt is pledged to that project. So if he wants to execute this transaction today, the debt capacity really isn't in the entity, so you've got to issue equity. But, you know, maybe that's the trade-off for starting a big project like that is you don't get to buy another company. Right. Then I think you- that is one of the, the interesting things of watching different managers and their pace of play over decades. So, you know, you watch Berkshire as sort of on one end of the extreme of they've always had more cash than they probably could have gotten away with. They've always been like one... They've always been N minus one acquisition acquisitions, um, whereas other companies you see like they're oftentimes trying to bite at the apple more than maybe they should at that time, uh, and they they could probably stand to operate their businesses and build up some some resources before going to try to tackle that next thing, uh, and you know it's I guess there's probably some perfectly optimal point of how aggressive you should be, uh, but I would say that. Like one, one make betting in one of them, I would be able to sleep much easier at night compared to the other one. 
I heard on a podcast, and I'm sorry, I forget exactly which one. I think it was Dan Ferris on the Investors Podcast, but he said, I think after Buffett did the Cap Cities deal, he didn't do anything for three years. Yeah. You got to digest that, right? I mean, it takes time. That's a long time to have the bat on the shoulder, though. Not if you're thinking in decades. Well, that's right? true. Well, and you look at what they just walked away with this tech data, right? Isn't that the company tech data that they just sort of, I guess, didn't miss the bid but got outbid? Um, you know, part of me says, well, boy, if you've got something in the crosshairs and you're sitting on all this cash, stretch a little. And I know that that's very not Berkshire. <laughs> so late cycle talk right there. <laughs> I, it probably is. That's fair. That's fair. Guilty is charged. YOLO! That's right. But no, I, yeah. I mean, it is late cycle for sure. But the other side of that is if you're thinking about 10 years down the road and you say, and I, I got this thought from my, my guy, Science of Hitting Investing, um, it's, it's beneficial to walk away, to say, look, we're going to put one bid in front of you. We're coming over the top of a bid that you've already accepted. So this is a good deal. You shop us, we're gone. And that makes a lot of sense if you're playing the long game. For sure, I own tech data. Uh, sold it before the, uh, the the bid came in, though. So don't get well played, any. Uh, sir. Yeah, that, thanks. I'll, thanks. I deserve everything I get. Go up, up for market timing. I <sighs> can't win them all. <laughs> so, well, you were in the right pond, so I congratulate you for that. Look, I feel pretty good. I've been getting into a few positions before. Uh, so I was in HBQ before Icon showed up. I feel good. I can. I think that. Value is starting to make sense again. Like for a long time, for I feel like for the last five years, value just hasn't made sense. You know, you buy stuff and it just goes down. Just rebalance out, buy some more stuff and it goes down. Well, you think that there's starting to be more M and A in your yeah. type of type of investment. One hundred percent pulls for like unlocks like that catalyst that yeah. everyone always loves to think that they have. I think everything's just been dormant for a while, but like the last three months in particular, they've just. Been, I feel like the activity's just exploded. Huh? Does that show up in the data? I haven't seen any anything recent on M and A activity. I don't want to look in case it in case it's not true. <laughs> I just want to enjoy the feeling. Okay, fair enough. I found myself listening to our old podcast. I'm one of the fans. Um, <laughs> You're one of the dozen yeah, downloads we yeah. had. Yeah, two views. Yeah, potentially a little conceited there, whatever. Um, but I, I was listening to your HPQ pitch, and I thought, you know, Toby's got an interesting one on this one. I mean, there's if that doesn't work, like you said, nothing's going to in that entity. At least yeah. it doesn't seem from a high level, right? I mean, I don't know all the details, but it's not a modern value position. It's not a compounder, but it's it's undervalued, and it's it's not going to go away. You know, to the if you that. They they make the worst printers in the world, but nobody else makes good printers. So what are you going to do? Yeah, what is that? How come there is no home printer that is worth anything? Like you get like I get eight pages out of a printer before it either the ink goes away or right. it it just totally goes to hell in a handbasket. What is that? We're we're not at that level of a like sophistication as a species. Well, I'm used to working in you know in law firms. You get these things that are the size of a family car. And they just yeah. pump them out. Now, I've had lots of them break down. Like the time they like to break down about 4 a.m. in the morning when you've got something <laughs> that you have to file at nine in the morning. Yeah. And, you, and the, all the air conditioners are obviously sweating like an animal trying to just get this thing to work, panicking. Space at the end. 
Fortunately, like, because every yeah. firm I've ever worked in, it was over like three floors and every floor had like 10 printers. You just go down to the next one, but I just leave them broken open because it was, but at least those things did work. Like those things were pumping out thousands of pages every day. Mine, I ask mine to print out about five pages once a quarter. And, it's and it like, won't do it, right? We're out of, we're out of ink. I just bought some ink. 3G's got to take over some law firms and get that printer uh, pages Expensive. down, right? Yeah. That's uh, that's that's back in ancient history though. They probably don't print stuff out anymore. I don't know. I was thinking I about just the bank. stacking them on top of each other as they break down, so that the new one coming in knows like <laughs> this you is know, what happens. There's, there's dead bodies here. You. This is the graveyard of fallen printers. There's there's not a person who hasn't watched that Office Space <laughs> movie where they beat that printer up with the baseball bats that didn't just like that moment of catharsis, like just kicking. So the cathartic. Wall such a what, what what's the what's the i forget the error hp print error or something like that yeah i was trying to think about what it was to drop that as a joke but then i yeah, couldn't come up with it, it. Like, too hard one thing just circling back to the actual discussion that we were having um <laughs> you know the the interesting thing that everyone agrees on today is compounders are where value should go right and i I've, I've said before that works but eventually the, the outcomes look rosier and rosier and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and eventually the price gets to the point where it, it doesn't make sense. I, there are so few cigar butt investors out there anymore. That it's a broke. It's, yeah, well, it's just hard to think that that's going to stay that way forever. I mean, by definition, that markets evolve and that should be, in theory, a place that eventually has strong outperformance and then... It's the law of ever-changing cycles. It's Victor Niederhofer's Education of a Speculator. He talks about the law of ever-changing cycles. Basically, you've got to be looking at what, what has just worked is what's not going to work. The thing that has not been working is the place that's a better place to bet. That's yeah. mean reversion. That's, that's deep value investing. Boy, you're really talking your book right now. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm flogging a dead horse. <laughs> yeah. It's not like you've spent any time thinking about this, right? Yeah, I'm a bulldog. I'm never going to let that go. I'll be I'll be 80 years old still talking about values just about to come back. It's just hang in there one more quarter. The wrong time to have my career. (laughs) Isn't that a shame? It does feel that way a little bit, huh? Like, I mean, have have you imagined the guru status that you would be walking around with every day if you had launched in '99? Wow, that's true. Walter Schloss. This man is Walter Schloss. I'm telling you now, it may not be the right time to be Walter Schloss, but I do think eventually you're going to be proven correct. Th- that's and very kind. And I will kind. be there saying, I've been saying this for a while. The, the, thing, the thing I find, like Walter Schloss is like the redheaded stepchild to uh, Buffett's golden-haired boy, right? And the, the crazy thing is that Schloss did like 20% a year for 50 years. Like only beside Buffett, is that not a good record? The guy's a beast. Yeah, he picked the wrong comparison to to ever like don't get into that pool. Like don't play Michael Jordan at basketball. Like you're even if you're really good, that's gonna be a bad outcome for you. Well he's and, and the thing I love most is he did it in like a tiny little office space and he borrowed somebody else's copy of Value Line to do it, just flick through Value Line. He couldn't have and and he and he walked home at four PM every day. Did he really? Yeah, he was. He, I, it was like lived a couple of blocks from the. I think that's right. Lived a couple of blocks from his home. Like just the markets closed at four. He was like, "Well, there's nothing to do. I'm going home." You know, that reminds me a little bit of. And if any listeners don't know this guy, you got to look him up. Is Arnold Vandenberg? 
I mean, I, I got to listen to him speak. He is one impressive man. But his backstory is unbelievable. Yeah, it's harrowing. Isn't oh, it? it's crazy. And he was talking about when he was getting started, his wife, you know, wanted to borrow a little bit of money and he just didn't have it. And he wrote her out this check for I think it was one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars or something. They clearly didn't have it. And, he, you know, it was one of those put this in your cabinet. I'll make sure that I can pay it someday. You know, and it, and that's he great. manifested it. I mean, that's why he loves to to talk about that Think and Grow Rich book. But he was talking about drinking wine, and he said, "I'll never drink wine. It's just not my DNA. That's not what a value investor does." And then I thought to myself, "Darn it!" Well, there are lots of different types of value investors out there. That's right. I'm the munger type. I want to live a decent <laughs> life while I invest. So, Jake, what's your what's your topic? Well, I'm I'm going to be Debbie Downer. I think in this uh, for this discussion, I saw this article and I followed up with some more research on it into some more of the primary uh, documentation of where it came from. But the U.S. corporate debt is approaching ten trillion dollars. So we've been we've been borrowing a lot of money as uh, in corporate at the corporate level, uh, and that's that's to fund three trillion dollars in buybacks in the last five years. Um, Fake news. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, <clears throat> right now, another data point I saw was that uh, $250 trillion of government, corporate, and household debt right now, which is about three times global output. And a, it adds up to about $32,000 per human on Earth. So I don't know what you do with that number, but it's like such a huge number. It's just kind of surprising. I I saw I saw something like this on Twitter, and I saw somebody responded. Uh, it was probably it was Jake at Economic probably, and he said that the the scale of I think GDP is up commensurately with the debt. Is that is that fair? Do you think? Well, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that three times global output to me says that that's a pretty big number. I mean, does, didn't uh, Rogoff and Reinhardt's studies show that like once you got over about 100 debt to GDP or whatever kind of output number that you want to use, you started to run into problems? I thought they found out. Wasn't there like a, a hard-coded cell in the Excel spreadsheet that their that they research assistant <laughs> and that disproves the whole thing? I, I'm, I I'm, be, I'm joking there. They, they actually yeah, did find the hard-coded error though, right? Yeah. I don't know if that like totally uh, we can throw everything that they said in the garbage because of that. I don't know. But I, I do think like here was another thing. I, I read this IMF study that came out here recently. And I know like how the why am I reading IMF studies? I don't know. But <laughs> you're a macro guy. Turn, yeah, well, the just crying turned, reading IMF studies. Why? So much debt. I've turned into a macro guy. Yeah. Um, Rolo's become Rolo. Just roll the debt. You're fine. Well, that's an interesting transition because what they – and granted, like you have to take everything with a grain of salt here. But they said that if there was a slowdown that was half as bad as the the great financial crisis, that 40 percent of the total global corporate debt, which amounts to $19 trillion, would be at risk of not being able to, to make interest payments. <laughs> So that's a, half of the GFC that we we were all around for. If it's yeah. half as bad as that, there's all this debt that is probably not money good. 
It's just going to be so inflated I, away, isn't it? That's what the central banks of the world are doing. Well, yeah, so I, 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 you know, this by itself is is kind of an interesting conversation. But I think where I'd like to go with it, it would actually be like, what are some of the second and third order effects of this much debt? You know, if you think about like these zombie companies, which I've seen two different numbers, like anywhere from six to ten percent of companies today even don't have enough earnings to cover interest expense. They, why they why are, aren't they collapsing? Why aren't they going through bankruptcy? Because they're able to borrow more money and just keep uh, the game going. Roll, roll it over. Low. Yeah, roll, roll, roll low. low. I like it. What does that, I mean, what does that mean for profit margins of the companies like that exist today that are competing with these companies? What does that mean for the amount of demand for other things? Like there's so many implications to this. I don't know. Like where does, where do you guys minds go with that? I don't want to get too macro on this. I'm going to try to tick some of my thoughts off quickly. Whenever I see these numbers, I think of AB InBev because it's something that I'm somewhat familiar with. The debt maturity schedule on that entity is a lot less scary than the headline number. Okay. So I think to the to the extent the debt markets are willing to accept long dated paper, issue it with rates this low. And then if rates go lower, you roll it, which brings me to another point. In my opinion, I, I don't allocate much right now outside of government paper to any corporate paper because I don't think there's yield commensurate with the risk that you're taking. Uh, so example, to give you a number on that is the triple B rated debt right now, the 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 spread between that and higher quality paper in 2009 was 7%. Today it's one point four percent. Yeah, you've got a ton of spread compression. Garbage. You know, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are looking for yield, and I, I found an interesting thing when when Grubhub reported their earnings and they wrote that letter. I thought to myself, I wonder what the debt looks like today, and I pulled up their credit agreement or the the bond debenture. The definition of EBITDA was roughly four and a half pages long. <laughs> now, some of those adjustments make sense. And, you know, somebody would probably tell me they all make sense. That's crazy. EBITDA doesn't it's need more than a lot seven, seven lines, right? Um, so long story short, I think there's a lot of risk in the debt markets. I don't know that it's a huge risk for the equity markets. Now, someone at Grants or something is going to call me an idiot and tell me, um, you know, what what happens if they're all cross defaulted, and that's a real issue. The only other macro thought that I that I do get to thinking about when I hear these things is debt does pull forward consumption, and I do think we're starting to potentially see GDP slowing to what I would deem concerning rates and i do wonder how much have we pulled forward but about put 250 this... trillion dollars by my <laughs> by my math well i put a lot of this in my too hard pile but that's that's where my mind goes i saw rogoff speak at uh, a macro conference that uh, my, my buddy chris cole invited me. I, there's, there's no reason why i should be at a macro conference i just he had a spare ticket so i went along and i was kind of interested like what happens at a macro conference what yeah. do macro guys talk about it's pretty interesting, actually. Macro guys are like special situations at a macro level. Like they're all talking about, you know, there's little triggers. If this happens, then this is this is what happens in a pretty direct way. Some of the ideas, 
you know, some some people are talking their book, but some of the ideas are pretty interesting. Rogoff was like the uh, the headline speaker, and it was just after the scandal where his research associate had found the the hard coded cell or whatever it was that that made some error. So Krugman had just eviscerated him in uh, his his column, and so I thought this is going to be really interesting because Rog- Rogoff's probably you know a little bit of a firebrand. He's probably going to get up and say something about uh, you know governments shouldn't borrow too much. Like I think that that's got to be the case. Right? There must governments fall over all the time. The Asian Tigers defaulted in the nineties. Russia defaulted in the nineties. The South American economies default all the time. Like default is a natural state. I think the U.S. has defaulted too a long, long time ago. Not for a very long period of time, but most countries default eventually when they get too much debt. Well, we're on our third central bank, right? I mean, that's that's a form of defaulting. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. No, that's that's interesting. I. I <clears throat> I, I, I had I was I was aware of at least one other, but Rogoff got up, and Rogoff is the most mainstream. Rogoff just delivered exactly what uh, every other economist out there says. Like Rogoff, and there's not there's no difference between Rogoff and Krugman. They have exactly the same views. Hmm. I was kind of I was kind of blown away. I was like, what? Why did you put out this big paper saying that there was some issue, and then and he didn't defend it at all? I was I was I thought it was utterly bizarre. Let me ask you guys this. If I feel like that there's some of that dynamic of like standing up at a parade where, you know, if ever everyone's doing it it makes sense, but then in aggregate it really starts to not make sense. So think about borrowing all this money to do share buybacks. Individually, it seems like it makes sense. Like borrow all this cheap money, it's long dated, and then buy back your your equity. Um you know, by the way, like corporate profits in the U.S. peaked in 2014, and it's all been just share shrinkage to drive EPS up in the, since then. Is so, that, is that right? I, I mean, what do I looked at? I looked at S and P 500. So I looked at S and P 500 operating earnings and earnings pretty recently, and I thought it was clo- it had like it had bounced back up to look like it was pretty much at all time highs. Uh, I think it. Well, I'll try to find the chart. I'll send it to you. Maybe we can. Post, post it somewhere notes. yeah uh could be i mean sometimes i feel like those numbers it like definitely softened. earnings numbers can be it softened and it was ways. off and then basically from like sometime in 2016 it, it bounced so it, the, the the like the market didn't ever follow the earnings the earnings kind of fall, fell off and then bounced and the markets kind of just proceeded on i guess how much of that was tax cut related it would be the only follow-up right but animal spirits I, I mean, what Starbucks did make sense. I get that. They they didn't have a lot of debt. That ba- balance sheet can handle debt. You're selling something that people are addicted to. I don't I'm not worried about stuff like that. But you know, and I'll probably die on this hill. This is part of why I believe in active. I I think in aggregate it's hard to argue to me that there's not going to be some negative consequence to all the debt. A lot of these companies can handle it. So make sure you're buying companies that can handle the debt is my suggestion. And then don't pay too much. And then if you find them cheap, call us. Yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a, I, I, it's like an existential angst for me that I think that there's, <laughs> there's way too much debt. But, you know, I, I've, I've only been, I've kind of been working for about 20 years and I've watched the debt 
like they said 10 trillion was like unsupportable and now well this is u.s government debt u.s government debt at 10 trillion was unsupportable i don't know what we're at now but it's like two and a half times that run yeah we do that in a we we can rack that up a decade right we're at trillion dollar deficit we're at 25 we'll be at 60 in a decade probably it's just nothing ever changes it just keeps on going up i know but doesn't it feel like that stuff doesn't matter and until all of a sudden it totally matters yeah but it also feels like people have been saying this for a really long time and it hasn't mattered. So, you know, I, I think that there is this tension between you're almost certainly right that at some point it, it matters. Lacey Hunt would say it, it's pulled forward a lot of the demand and that's why growth is slow. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily a wrong uh, perspective. Part of me wonders if low rates beget low rates because they fund these super long duration things like Uber, and that has a deflationary impact. And that, especially when you default on it. Yeah. Well, and, well, and that means that. Yeah. Right. I mean, we'll see what they can do. But I think that's interesting. I, saw, I think that's I saw right. Uber was a five star stock on Morningstar. That's pretty shocking to me. <laughs> considering who they are and what that is dude have you taken and lit an uber anywhere it's sweet it's sweet <laughs> yeah that's my theory on low rates i don't know if it makes any sense i'm sure one of the listeners is going to send me well justified hate mail but i think I like that's to right, ask though. myself the, the question what would 1972 buffett write about on this topic well he's, he's just hoarding he cash. didn't care as much about like he was, he wrote about thing. Like he would call things out a little bit more at, at that time period of his career. He's written one in the last ten years about. Uh, he said it's not, uh, it's not, it's not carbon dioxide emissions. It's uh, yeah. dollar emissions. Dollar emissions, yeah. Pollution. And he was, he was again. It. He's been pretty quiet for the last decade. It's got worse over that period. I think that he, you know, I think he has done that a few times. He's. His views are out there. I don't know what it. It doesn't. I don't. I think I, he just doesn't seem to hammer the view. He sort of makes the point and then goes on with his life. Yeah, Maybe that's what I need to do. Gunlock's been hammering it. You can call up Jeff and see He's, what he says. Yeah, he says there's a forty percent chance of going into recession last year. The forty percent chance is just the that's if you don't know what's going to happen, but you want to be able to claim credit for whatever. Perfect. Happened. Yes. Yeah. Forty percent. Hey, I said it was. Then people are just like, oh, Gunlock said that was going to happen, but. Uh, if it doesn't happen, he said, I only said it was 40%. That's like two in five. It's, it's the three in five chance that, that it didn't happen. That's right. Thinking in bets. Yeah, that's not. <laughs> yeah, nobody takes, nobody, like the 40% bet is much more common than the 60%, right? You never go 60. You, Because <laughs> then that implies. Depends like, on the payoff. Well, but I'm saying in these like grandiose pr- proclamations, no one says 60%. No, no one remembers the, no one remembers the ones that were wrong anyway. That's why. Just spray and pray. Just keep on saying it. Next year when it works, you'll be like, yeah, I got it right. Somewhere, Nuriel Rabini is still saying that we're about to all collapse. Right? He, he was right 10 years ago. He might be right again sometime soon. Dr. Doom, yeah. He's been partying pretty hard, I think, for the lot. He's been dining out on that for a long time. <laughs> Toby, what's, uh, what's your topic for today? So I saw this great tweet from Morgan Housel. Uh, like every Morgan Housel thing, brevity being the soul of wit, it's alliterative. It's all of the things that I really love in a short little tweet. Buffett should buy Bloomberg. So 
Bloomberg's going to run for pre- or he's running for president. Who knows what his chances are, but you probably can't go into that owning a big news organization. <laughs> That's probably not a good look. So he's going to have to divest himself or stick it in a blind trust or something like that. So Doesn't Trump own Twitter? <laughs> kind of. Psychologically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think it's a it's a good stock for Buffett because it's it's one of those things that it's got that lock in. It's a very very high margin profit. It's got lots lots of log in uh, lock in. I've been pitched like a dozen times over the last ten years for all of these competitors to Bloomberg that they're just going to supply the data. So at some stage, I think somebody's going to come in and I think it's thirty five thousand dollars a year for a terminal. Someone's going to come in with a. We're going to charge you ten thousand or five thousand, give you give you comparable data feeds, and maybe they can compete. But from Buffett's perspective, it probably is a pretty good Buffett. And I think he said, I think Morgan was pitching fifty billion. I've got no idea what the kind of money that he's making out of it, but Buffett's got the cash. I think it's a pretty good acquisition for him. It's not quite thirty five grand a year, but it's not cheap. What is it? Um, uh, it's twenty five. Sixty seven fifty a quarter is. The most recent number that I can so recall. So it's 26, 26 a year. Yeah, ish. Twenty-seven. Right? I said that. I said that uh, if if the deal gets done, they should give Morgan a sling from the commission because the commission. I don't know what kind of commission you get on it, but it used to be like three percent on fifty billion is one point five billion. So they can they can give him five percent of that, which is still seventy five million. And then I want five percent out of uh, Morgan for suggesting it, which yeah. comes in at like three and a half million. It's not a bad haul just for piggybacking Morgan's tweet. Quick tweet, yeah. Do we know any of the numbers of, of the business in Bloomberg other than just like users and rough estimate at like revenue? I doubt it. I mean, I do not. I haven't seen any either. Is that not part of your Bloomberg feed? No, Mike doesn't tell people how much he makes. Come on now. It's crazy. It is a, it's a perfect business for Berkshire. I mean, it would be perfect. Um, and I've, I've actually found that the terminal, as much as people like to hate on it, is a very, very solid uh, product. And they're adding they're adding features to make it worth, I, I think, the value proposition slightly better. I don't know. I just pulled up on Google. It, it appears as though the revenue is $10 billion. Um, but who knows if that's true? They were talking. Let's see. SAS trading at five times thirty times revenue. revenue. Like that. Uh, what's that get you? I don't know. Even three hundred billion when LBO. <laughs> when you know when Renaissance started out, they were they they were just there was no good data. They, they started out before Bloomberg. So Bloomberg came on the scene with reasonable data, and it was a game changer for for Renaissance and everybody else. So their motto is uh, the best data is more data. And this this is Renaissance, which I thought was mm. kind of, I don't know, I, I don't know if that's my, I don't think that's my motto. I think my motto is uh, the right data is the best data, but too much data kind of overwhelms you. You just you can't open up. And I think that that's the crit- the only criticism that I've ever seen of Bloomberg of the Bloomberg terminal was out of Guy Spear, and he said I feel too good when I open it up and I start using it. So he had to move it into a different room, and it's at a stand up desk. Which I have a stand-up desk too. I'm the only value investor who's ever got turf toe from from trying to read ten Qs. Pretty awesome that you can walk on that thing too. That's legit. It's very good for you. It's very good California. For, good for the core. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I don't know. I mean, I saw that tweet. I thought that was a really good take. I, I, if you, if you can think of a perfect business that goes to Berkshire, he can promise that the employees will stay the same. He can promise the culture is not going to change. He can, you know, I mean, it's, it is theoretically set up perfectly. I hope he has not told Mike what he told the Mars family, which is never sell this thing. I hope he told him, you call me first. But I would I would be a happy owner of the Bloomberg terminal, even if it's a declining asset. Do you, do you, you don't have to sell, I guess. Trump hasn't sold it, oh, as far as I know. Does he, he doesn't, does Trump still run Trump? No, it's in a blind trust. Right. I, I think the way to do it is you get elected and then you can sell tax-free. That's how John Ooh. Malone would do it. Oh, yeah. Or spin off a Bloomberg tracker stock somehow. <laughs> I did. Uh, I did see recently. A friend sent me a <clears throat> a little story about Malone that he was looking at buying a bunch of uh, set top boxes, and there was a company that was offering to make them, and it was going to be a pretty big deal for this company. Like they hadn't they hadn't delivered like you know three hundred million boxes before. And uh, Malone asked as part of the deal for uh, some warrants in that company. Mm -hmm. And those turned into more money than it cost for the order because of the like kingmaker status. He's such a gangster. That dude is a beast. (laughs) So he actually made money by getting the set-top boxes by cranking a warrant out of this company. In case people want to fact check me on the QVC and discovery statement from last week, that was out of Cable Cowboy. And that's what I was saying he used to do with these stations, right? They would come to him and they'd say, we have some content. And he'd say, all right, fine, you can get on my cable network and I'll take a little bit of your equity. He's a monster. (laughs) It's smart. So the – so – when you when you're telling that story, I thought Jake initially that that was he was buying set top boxes for his house, but he's buying. This was part of the uh, part of the deal, and then he didn't presumably get the warrants that went into the that went into the company. No, no, not him, but like TCI or whatever the vehicle was at the time got got the warrants that turned into, you know, one and a half times the the cost of the boxes. I'll pay it, man. That's smart. My buddy in uh, that that's from the the oil sector thinks that ultimately what happens with Occidental is they chew through all the synergies and then Chevron comes in and buys the lean company and that's how Buffett wins because <laughs> he's got the warrants. So, I, which I, is sort of interesting. Good structure. Just before we go, we have a question of the week. Uh, this one was um, from Jim. Uh, I'm not going to read his, his his Twitter handle because it's a bit rude. But uh, said uh, I mentioned Eric Cinnamon's Real Vision interview, which is a good one if you if you want to listen to one that's worth listening to. So, uh, any good value focused podcasts or interviews that you want to recommend, gents? What are your What are your thoughts? Well, I'll go first. Uh, actually, I've been enjoying uh, Eric's been writing recently more. Uh, and so I subscribe to his his letters that come out, I think, once a month-ish, maybe a little bit more frequently than that. But I always – I find them to be very high-value ads. So I'm a big Cinnamon fan. What's the, what's the, what's the name of his uh, site? 
uh, it's like Palm Valley Capital or something like that. Yeah, I that's might as far as I got to have that wrong. Uh, but no, we'll put it great. in the show notes. We'll, we'll give him a link in the show notes. Yeah. I've got two. I've been ruminating on Joel Greenblatt's interview with Columbia's uh, Value Investing with Legends. Yeah, that was and then Real Vision did one with Dr. Gio Valiente, Sustainable Excellence in Investing in Life. That is a fantastic, fantastic podcast that I think everyone could benefit from listening to. I haven't heard that one. I'll definitely go and listen to that one. So one, I mentioned it earlier, but it's a good one. Uh, Dan Ferris was on Investor's Podcast. It's well worth listening to because Dan's, Dan's got a, a crazy background. He used to be a, a professional or semi-professional Spanish guitar player. And uh, he got, I think he got whatever the, the, the finger equivalent of turf toe is and he had to give it away, which is why he became a value investor. It's brutal injury to, to be relegated to value investing. That's, that's a like, real career ending right there. I, one of the interesting things in Greg Zuckerman's book, Zuckerman's book, uh, he was talking about the guys were getting uh, carpal tunnel from doing too much typing. So that's huh. the that's the big risk for a value investor. You get some sort of wrist injury from too much uh, onanism or too much uh, typing. I think we're coming up on time. So just before we go, I want to give a shout out to Donald at Guantanamo Bay. Thanks for the kind note. I forwarded that on to Jake and Bill. Um, we're glad that you are watching and listening down there. I uh, hope it's providing some some interesting things to think about while you're there. The first Shout out and, to all the troops. Yeah, the first and probably last piece of fan mail that we'll get. From Guantanamo. <laughs> Uh, happy happy to you know provide some some enjoyment i was hoping that someone out there would be listening to us the fact that it's actually active military made me like really feel good inside so yeah, hopefully too. we can continue to entertain it was a great note to get uh thanks very much folks we'll be back next week Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13 Sing one, one, two, three